Forgotten Sisters is a story about two sisters who live in a historic bungalow along the Chicago River. And slowly they start noticing men being drowned outside of their home within the river. And eventually two detectives come calling because they have made a connection between the house where the sisters live and the potential killer. One of the things about Forgotten Sisters and, um, you know, uh, you wrote like other books in general is um, very obviously being centered around Chicago. And so um, I, being a Chicago person myself, I'm always like kind of drawn to um, seeing people's takes on on the area. And like, it's always kind of nice to feel connected to something more intimately because you've seen the thing or you've heard about it before. So like as a Chicago person, that's always like a nice little extra for, for me. Um, but there's kind of a twofold uh, effect in this book. And, and in as much as like, there's so much talk about Chicago, it's almost a character in the book, but then also there's a lot of talk about different historical events um, in the book as well. So um, I guess starting out talking about Chicago I feel like it was a very important character in the book. Is that does that track with how you feel about it? Were you writing it almost as a character? Yes, that's one thing I have done in my most recent works where Chicago is spotlighted as its own character. And I remember growing up, media was like inundated. Everything was like New York and LA and New York and LA. And I was just kind of like, Chicago's like amazing. This is like... Uh, a world-class city. It's absolutely beautiful here. And there's so much here in terms of like his history and yes, and some media outlets we are seen as like the boogie boogeyman, but it's <laughs> a complex city with like millions of people. So of course there's crime that happens here, but then there's also, you know, everything from like working class to millionaires and the, the skyscraper was, developed here al frank Baum wrote the wizard of oz here chicago was the silent film capital of the world at one point so chicago is a very important city so much was made here and built here and i in my writing i've consciously tried to highlight that highlight how amazing this place is it, all right so you just made a good point that um so one of is my is my day job. I'm a trainer, and usually I have people from my company coming in from all over the country um, to do trainings. And you know they're out, they're from out of town, and they'll always ask like, "What is there to do in Chicago?" And to do, <laughs> I'm like, "There's literally there's something for literally anybody here." And like you said, it's a world class city. Wow. It's got world class examples of anything you can think of is 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 exists in Chicago. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, the fact that, like you're saying, it is, it doesn't get the um, kind of credit that it deserves. I think, like you, kind of like you had mentioned, very strange. And I think it's for a few. I think it's for multiple reasons that I know we can't go into here, but many of them are <laughs> dealing with like socioeconomics and even our placement within the Midwest. And there's this, you know, stereotype of Midwesterners and. Midwesterners are very pleasant. We're very pleasant. We're very family oriented. And, you know, people in community are very important to us. And I'm not saying that about the other cults, uh, that, that they're not, but that is very foundational to the Midwest. And I'm always surprised and shocked when people are like, well, I have to go into Chicago. It's terrifying. Yes, again, there's, there, like with, with all communities and with all places, that there are areas that they're, um, have, they've been disinvested and because of multiple reasons that we would never answer here, but there's so much here from, you can get anything here in terms of food from like a few dollar hot dog to like Michelin star world-class restaurants. And we have two sports teams and I never understood like the White Sox and Chicago Cubs rivalry. I always thought that was the strangest thing because to me it was always like, it's so cool that we have two baseball teams. And yeah. I live on the West side, but I consider myself a Sox fan just because I remember like in 2005 when I started going to like Sox games, there were like 10 bucks or something. And my husband and I would just go and there was like no one, like you would pay for like all the way up, 
all the way up. And then you could still like sit on like the 100 uh. And it was the year where I remember like really consciously saying, I'm going to become a, a Sox fan because there's no one here. And that was the year they won the World Series. And I was like, this is amazing. But uh, I mean, I still love the Cubs. I, you know, My dad was a, a Cubs fan and he was able to see them win the World Series before he died. And so, I mean, it's a great town, like sports, the lake, the lake is gorgeous and yeah. it's public and it's free, you know, free and other areas where there's a, glorious body of water like that it's just inundated with like private property no you can have access to to the lake here which is wonderful yeah and then anything else like from a tourist perspective museums theater uh anything cultural like there's second city you know comedy improv like so much of like the important things that for for someone to enjoy kind of casually is just I can't yeah. imagine raising my children in the suburbs. I would never. I mean, I could take, I was like, I, I would get bored out of my brain living in the suburbs. Sorry to suburbanites, but like, I take my kids out and it's like, we're going to go downtown. Like in the summer, we're bored. Okay, we're going to drive downtown and we're going to walk around museum campus. Even if it's like the museums are closed, it's it's open access. We can walk around. We go to the Art Institute Mm-hmm. Um, every third, like as many Thursdays as we can, because it closes at, they close at eight o'clock at night. We go to, I mean, it's just, there's so much for, and my, my, my oldest is 10. And of course he wants to be an artist like his mom. And so this is just a perfect place for him. He has so much inspiration. Garfield park conservatory is free. There's a lot of free programming. And then if you're like into festivals, like Chicago will not stop during festival season and street fest. And so that's what we do. And so I like, I mean, as a parent, for me, it's been wonderful because I, art is very important to me and they have access to all these types of arts and artists and community. So. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and we're not, this isn't going to be like a 40 minute, like conversation about Chicago, right. but like, if you think about even like education and stuff, University of Chicago is all the suburbanites just like logged off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which I am like, bye. I'm like uh 40 miles Northwest of Chicago. So I am like locked into yeah. like some pretty far burbs, but um, far. yeah, but I've lived in the city plenty of times throughout my, my life and everything. And I spent a lot of time I in the city. I spend a lot of time in rural communities. So I do have friends <laughs> that I have friends that own a farm and I love going to spend time with them at their farm. I won't say where I go because then I'll have people looking for me, but I, I do go to, I'd spend a lot of time at like rural communities with throughout Illinois, because there's something for me that's really inspiring being out in like farm country and what, what it areas. And so I do really enjoy doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I do a lot of forest preserve walking. Yes. It's a great thing like in the suburbs anyway. All right. So we love Chicago. Chicago is a fantastic city. Um, it, it's and it very much lives in 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 the Forgotten Sisters. Um, and I, as a like I said before, as a person who grew up in this area, just hearing something named or seeing something named, and then like being able to picture it in my head, just really kind of helps me like be in the story. So um, that was a really cool part of the experience. But the other thing about Chicago that's really woven into the story is. Um, a lot of the history of Chicago. So um, for different reasons, and one of them is the main character, person we see the most of the stories from the perspective from um, Anna, Anna Arbor, which by the way, um, the reference not lost on me. Um, <laughs> so uh, one of the things that she does is like, she does a podcast where um, she's talking about things that have happened in the history of Chicago. And and I don't think necessarily it's all necessarily tragedies, but the history of Chicago has a lot of like dark moments too. And so she gets to explore that. Um, and I guess my question is um, when I'm, when I'm reading through this book, I'm thinking this is all so fascinating. And this is the place I, I grew up living near and it's, it's near and dear to me. And I love to hear about these great things. Um, so like, did you just, love falling into little rabbit holes about the history of Chicago and, or were there things that you knew ahead of time you wanted to explore and talk about for the story? Like how is the history of Chicago 
tie into this from you as far as like research and wanting to represent parts of it? So a lot of it, I just learned growing up. My father came here in the 50s and 60s. And this was a time, I mean, when I was born in the 80s, this was a time when we didn't go to preschool. You just kind of waited until you were like five and six. And but I remember like my father, my mom, my mom worked full time and my dad was a stay at home dad. And I just remember my dad just being bored at home with me and be like, come on, kid. And we would hop on the aisle and we would go downtown. And he was like my tour guide for for those years before I started school. And he would take me to like city hall and he would show me these buildings. He would take me to Union Station and show like he would just loved the architecture of the city and the different neighborhoods. He would take me to Greek town for a Euro and he would take me to, I mean, we would get pierogi. It was just, I just remember how fantastical that was as being like a four year old and your dad's just taking you all over these places and trying different foods and going to little Italy. And I just remember falling in love. I mean, with my dad, of course, but I like the city. And I mean, throughout time, we, we would always adventure, go, go adventure different neighborhoods. And that's the cool, cool thing about Chicago is like it's a, it's a city of neighborhoods and there's different ethnic groups and, um, and their food and their culture is very represented even within their, within the architecture of the spaces, like from Pilsen or Greektown. And an undergrad at Columbia College, I remember taking like history, like a lot of Chicago history courses. Mm. And we would even like, I just, I had like really cool professors that also loved the city and that were, and at Columbia College, a lot of these professors were like working class mm-hmm. or working artists as well. And I had majored in journalism. So a lot of my professors were like, reporters at the Tribune, reporters at the Sun-Times, and then they would take us to, like, Billy Goat, <laughs> Billy Goat Tavern, <laughs> to, like, get, like, under Wacker Drive, or they would walk us through, like, the South Loop and talk to us about the old printing press presses that were stored in these buildings and, and talk about the history of that area. And so much of this I already knew, and I was, like, really into, like, all things paranormal for a bit. I think I went through like my paranormal <laughs> phase where I was just fascinated by ghosts, even though I don't believe in ghosts. Sorry to people who believe in ghosts. I, I'm fascinated by people's belief in ghosts. And so yeah. I would do all like the tours, like the Chicago ghost tours and the Al Capone tour. So I, I've done all of this and I've read extensively about the city and the history of the city. And so I came to this with a lot of this knowledge already. I don't think there was anything in this book that I learned for this book. I think much of this I already knew and I just kind of expanded on to make sure that I had the, but I knew the general things and I just kind of started expanding on to make sure I had the facts right. And my editors would <laughs> double check, double, triple check, <laughs> you know, like giving the correct names and dates. So. Um, that's awesome. And um man, I really kind of envy that childhood of just going out and experiencing. Um, as someone who grew up in the suburbs, it was very much like I rode my bike to the limits of my ability and that was that was my world. So being able to be in the middle of such an incredible city at a young age and that's like how you grow up would be really mm-hmm. cool. Yeah, that was my preschool, like on the L with my dad. And we're like, well, where are we going to go? We're going to go to Jackson Park today. And it's like, where are we going? And it was, he, you know, he was at home and he was bored and he was just like, I can play tour guide. And I, it was a wonderful, it was a magical childhood um, being with him and him taking me to the parks. And I mean, he loved Humble Park and he would, take me all over Humble Park and show me the horse stables. And um, he, I believe he's the one that knew that L. Frank Baum wrote The Wizard of Oz mm. there. And I was like, really, Dad? And then, yeah, <laughs> little by little, I, I learned that he did. He wrote parts of it there. That's awesome. Um, so a couple thoughts. I just want to tag on to how you, you, you were talking about you reaching all different areas of the city. Is I lived in Andersonville for a while, and um, I lived on Argyle Street, and one day I was just walking toward the L and I happened to see like a plaque on a building and it was the SNA studios or whatever. Yeah. I didn't realize I was living down the street from like Charlie Chaplin's, like the location yeah. where he like did his like film studio stuff. And, and I feel like that's kind of, um, 
So this book, yeah. <laughs> the book beforehand, the Shoemaker's Magician deals with that, with uh, yeah. Chicago's history as the silent film capital. That's so cool yeah. that you live right there. Yeah, and and but that's the thing. I think you can just kind of stumble across something insanely historic and not even realize it because it's just everywhere. So, um, but one of the feelings talking about the history uh, and and some of the kind of more not even necessarily negative but significant things. So um, it was the was it Union like stock Union Stockyards? Is that what it? Yeah, yeah, I got that right. I know I'm terrible with names. Um, how these historical things um, almost kind of leave something behind or they kind mm-hmm. of carry through history. So um, with that specific um, part of the story, when Anna is is visiting that area and, and thinking about everything that happened when Chicago was like the kind of like slaughterhouse capital of the country, um, and, and, and how people today say that they feel like they can hear mm-hmm. animals and, and, and the noises and stuff from that time. And so with that example, but other examples of different um, historical stories that you, you brought up, I got a very kind of sense of just not necessarily like in a ghostly way, but just like the, the things that have happened historically kind of echo through time. And I feel like that was, that was very effective. So um was that on purpose or was I reading into that? No, that was definitely on purpose. And I wanted to talk about, I, I mean, I think this entire city in a way, even though I'm like, I don't believe in like the, the, the spectral ghost, like the thing that you see. But I think there is something to be said about all of these places, like the Union Stockyards, like this was a massive space, a massive area where millions of animals were slaughtered. I mean, Chicago was the hog, they were called the hog butcher of the world. And I forgot what the percentage was, but like, I think it was like 60% of all households at one point in America got their meat from the union stockyards here in Chicago. And not just that, but like the people that worked at the union stockyards, these were all immigrants. These were German, Irish, Polish, Czech, um, Greek. And so I think a lot of people, when they think of immigrants today, they have a very specific location that they're, or areas that they're thinking about. But we also forget that immigrants used to be someone else many years ago. And even at that time, these immigrants were not treated very well. The people that mm-hmm. worked at the Union Stockyards, Germans, Irish, Polish, Czech, they lived in very difficult conditions. And they worked grueling hours and I mean, they didn't have the type of facilities that our people have today and these like meat processing plants. So it was a very, I can imagine. I mean, people came here for the same reason that people come here to this day to like build a life for their family. And so I, I thought of mm-hmm. them. I think a lot of forgotten sisters, I mean, it is an immigrant story in a way. It's about the German, Irish, Polish, Czech people that came here and how we've forgotten many of these people, how many of them worked so hard and many of them didn't even have time off. <laughs> Maybe if they were lucky, they got like one day a week, but mm-hmm. so, yeah. yeah. Um, and you just brought up something that I, I had not mentally kind of connected with, but so I'd mentioned earlier, my girlfriend lives in Albany park, which is kind of like on the nor- more North part of, of Chicago. But her neighborhood is just bungalows and they're very similar to, you know, um, the house that's described in your book. And one of the things that I thought was neat was it was, I was in the basement one time and the way that her house is laid out is there's a, there's an entrance towards the back of the house that goes down into the basement. It's like a few steps down in the basement. And like the first thing that you got to when you came down those steps was a shower and so basically like the people who were like, like working stockyards or other kind of like really heavy trade labor, they would come home, they'd go into the basement and they would shower first and they would just kind of like wash the work day off of them before going and joining their family. Yeah. And it was such a, it was such a common thing that that's like how the house was designed. And I thought that was like such a really cool thing. So like going into any house in that neighborhood, you know, down in the basement, 
there's going to be like a bathroom area because they came in and the first thing they did was shower. And I thought that was really cool. That is very cool. Yeah. Yeah. But that's how many of these homes were designed. That's gosh. Yeah. I could. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I'm going to get to grief eventually. And this, that actually probably might be a a good time to talk about it now, but there's a big, there's a big grief aspect, but another thing. And I think this is just cause like it's, it's, it's tickling a Chicago specific thing for me is um, one of the things that's uh, a thread throughout the story, both with Anna and then with the other people that we see the the story perspective from Detective Kowalski and Rodriguez is um, this phenomenon that's been happening recently in Chicago where people will go young, ostensibly, you know, younger, mostly men, um, but not exclusively, will go missing and then their bodies will... Um, be found in the Chicago river. And um, so this is a, this is a theme that, that, that happens throughout your book. And um, when I noticed that this was going to be a part of it, I got so excited because it's one of those things where like you hear about it and you're like, Oh, whatever. And then you hear more about it and you're like, Oh, whatever. And then you hear more about it and you're like, is there something to this? And so um, I was really excited that, that an element was, was included that was kind of like that. Is this something that you you follow kind of personally and, and were inspired to add to the book? Or um, yeah, what's your what's your take on the whole thing? Well, it's I I forget the number, but you know, it's been dozens of college age men have been found drowned along Chicago's waterways. And it's typically around the Chicago River. And many of them do go missing, like in the River North area and Law enforcement wants to attribute that to, well, they were drinking and they were, they got too close to the railing. I don't know. I think maybe like one or two would be a coincidence. Three, four, five, 10, 12. It's now it's a little worrisome. And I think it's something that, I mean, my husband's been careful as well. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, the other day he was like walking around um, the river walk, like, close to like Irving Park area and it was dusk. And then he calls me. He's like, I just realized where I'm at at dusk. There's no one here. (laughs) Even he was kind of like a little panicky about that. And so I just think there's something it's strange. I mean, I, I know a lot of people are like, well, there's a serial killer operating. It's the smiley face serial killer. I mean, you can Google smiley face serial killer. (laughs) And um, there's a whole slew of theories about, I mean, so that is what, of course, I, you know, I knew it's an urban legend. I mean, I, I did look into the smiley face serial killer theory. I mean, that's something similar, similar that was happening in the Boston area as well. And now it's kind of moved into the Midwest. And I just think it's strange. I think, again, if it was like one or two, maybe three, it's a coincidence. But the number of young college-age men that are found drowned along our waterways is staggering. And they're found in very similar conditions. Like, they... Like there's no, they, they say that they're leaving a location, a pub or a restaurant, and then they're just never seen from again. It's just completely bizarre. And it's, it's scary. I mean, I'm a mother. Mm-hmm. I can only imagine like, you know, uh, you know, parents out there were, you know, that have to get these phone calls. And so it's, it's something that I wanted to write about. And when I was thinking about, well, how do I weave this in? And typically my stories are fairy tales and I like to grab a fairy tale and adapt it. And I was like, well, the little mermaid, the little mermaid just seemed like it would be perfect to kind of overlay it with it. I don't know. I don't know what's happening. I think it's strange. I think it's very Mm -hmm. troublesome. And I would just caution anyone if you're walking around like a river walk or along the lake area, just to, you know, be mindful of your surroundings. It, it's something that kind of permeates um, your mind in a way though. And, and so I'll give you a, a example, um, a young teen just started mm-hmm. high school and um, was walking to the library by himself, you know, uh, one day and he's gone 10 minutes or whatever. Like he's on his way. And then she gets a call and it's her son saying, Hey, some car stopped and was trying to ask me to get into the car or ask me questions about stuff. 
I've heard. And immediately they're at the police department, like filing, you know, a report and everything. But like, yeah, like, so then you're thinking if it weren't all these instances of things going on, maybe you should just be like, okay, be more careful. But now there's a whole different kind of context to if someone pulls up and starts talking to you, like, yeah, you have to think about where could this lead? What, what's going on? That is one thing I've heard with some of the research that I, that I did that young men would say they were walking and someone would pull up along them while they were walking and say, Hey, do you need an Uber? Are you, did you call it an Uber? And it's like, no. And then the person in the vehicle was very insistent on them getting in. And so I don't know. And it's, and that's, I mean, I don't want to like speculate because I don't want to create a mass panic, but it is, it is weird. And so I, I would caution anyone just to be careful. Um, Nothing is, I mean, authorities haven't said anything. They don't suspect anything, but it's a lot of young men, college age. Yep. Yeah. Um, But I will say that, um, and obviously I, I, I will not spoil anything, but the way that you kind of tied that up at the end of the book, I loved, I thought it was fantastic and it was um, just kind of perfect for the story. So I really appreciated that. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's hard to, I do cover a lot of like real world type events. And so it's hard for me, like when I'm writing about these things, it's like, well, I can't like wrap this up like a perfect bow because these things are still going on and so how can i give the reader resolution that they at least feel that the story is done um yeah we know you and i know there's still something strange going on (laughs) on that river wall area yeah yeah yep um hopefully it's uh not something bad but i I mean obviously it's bad people lost their lives but hopefully it's not something like deeply sinister um so but all right we might as well talk about grief um uh grief is is something that plays a part in the book as well so um anna and her sister jenny um in the throughout the book are dealing with a recent loss of their parents in a in an accident in a car accident and so um grief is kind of a big big part of their story but then um also there is detective i believe it's like detective kowalski had lost his son in an accident involving the river um and so there's grief uh coming from there's a lot of grief in these characters and and dealing with um life after losing someone you love um which uh you know it's it's a it's it's touching and it's emotional and it makes you feel differently for these characters. Um, but it's definitely a theme that's, that's throughout the book. And it's something it feels like for me, I felt my reading experience of reading it and the, and the grief aspect of it was um, kind of an exploration of um, hiding from our grief, knowing how to deal with grief over you know, getting beyond our grief, like the whole the process of, of start to finish, like, and how it impacts us. And in a way, in almost a supernatural way, how it has its own power or energy too. So um, uh, I think it was, it was for me, it's helpful to think about those things. Um, I'm just wondering from your perspective, knowing that you recently lost your father and I'm, and I'm sorry Mm -hmm. about that. Was that part of writing the book or was the book already being written before that happened? The book was already being written as a sort of memorial. I was memorializing um, these people and there, I mean, if you read the book, you'll know um, who it is I'm memorializing. Mm -hmm. And I, when I started writing it, that was my concern that these people had been forgotten. And I just, and they died so tragically. And I just couldn't, I mean, even now, like it's just difficult for me to even comprehend, like how do these people die in this type of event? And we just kind of move on. And then I started thinking about grief overall. Well, that's kind of like 
our societal expectation. And I can imagine at that time, even right, you know, you're working in these like factory settings, um, immigrants, and there wasn't a lot of time to grieve or to process. And then I, <laughs> and then as I started writing the book, uh, my father's cancer reemerged. And uh, at that time it was like, well, this is it. This is, this is terminal. And I mean, I was writing it sitting next to him and he did at home hospice and I was still writing the book. I believe the night before he died, I was, I was still writing because he sent me home. He's like, I, you can't stop. I remember he was like, why are you sitting here watching me die? <laughs> when he was still yeah. coherent, it's like, why are you sitting here watching me die? You need to finish this book. And I remember, I just remember like crying, like just being so overcome that he's struggling to speak and to breathe. And these are the words that he's telling me, right, finish this book. And I, and I knew that I feel like the book is bigger than me because of what it represents. And it represents that we, we can't forget these people that lived and breathed. And, and I don't know the best way to do that, but I think to move on, without ever knowing with with a kind of like ignoring that they ever existed is so sad and i i mean i dedicated this to him um and i hope it's a way i hope when people read the dedication they can at least think for like two seconds or something They're like wow mm-hmm. she's she's trying to remember her father and he was um he supported my writing career he thought at first it was i mean he always thought my love of horror was just like so silly and fun interesting but he supported it and uh I, I wish he could be here to see this book because I think this book meant a lot to him that I write this story about these people. Well, there's a ton of empathy in it. And I think you, you said it way better than I was going to be able to, or probably will be able to restate, but the whole idea of like something really tragic happened and it's almost like not long afterwards, it doesn't matter. And so, um, yeah, the idea of it's important to honor people. It's important to remember people. It's important to, um, kind of give them importance was, a was a real strong kind of feeling in the story in general. And, um, yeah, if there was, if there's no other message anybody gets out of it, I think that knowing that people are important and, to, to honor them and respect them is a huge deal. Yeah. And maybe it's because, you know, it was right after, you know, this was right after COVID as well. And so I, I was just thinking about that. I was just thinking about all these people died and we're just kind of expected to just go back into things. And even for me, I mean, it's, it's still, it's still difficult every day. Like I think people think, okay, well your father died. And I know a lot of people don't have like close relationships with their parents. They're like, well, what's the big deal? I'm like, no, we were like, my dad and I were like my best friend. Um, And so it's still, I think people may think that time makes it better. It actually makes it worse because then you're just like, they're not here for me to tell them that. Or just like last week I had a very difficult day. And I just remember walking away from my computer and I got in the car and my husband's like, where are you going? And I was like, the cemetery to talk to my dad because he's not here. I can't pick up the phone. So I'm just going to go talk to a patch of grass. And he was just like, you know, and so that that, yeah. that hit him too. And so uh, these people mean something to us. And like, what does that mean when so many people as well, like with COVID, what does it mean when so many people are lost, like over a short course of days that that leaves like a ripple effect and I would imagine these people that I wrote about what kind of ripple effect is still being felt after their death yeah yeah um and I I think that if I had to guess um they're using the COVID uh example um I, I feel like the people who just wanted it to just be over were the people who we're just thinking about themselves, you know, and how it inconveniences them. And then there are the people who realize this is a mass trauma that everybody experienced and it really changed the world and it changed people individually. And there's something to that that's more significant than people are acknowledging. I think the difference is like, what, how are we looking at things? Are we looking at it as like how it, how it impacted me as a person or is it, are we really 
flexing empathy to try to understand how it impacted the the people. Yeah. And so, yeah. I think, I mean, as an aside, or I guess I to add to that, I, I personally feel that many people, I mean, I, I was, I mean, I, I grew up in the eighties without like internet. And so I remember <laughs> that time. I personally feel that, People are less empathetic today because so much is customized and so much is for like that instant gratification of that Mm. moment that I think people feel like, well, I don't have to give in for somebody else. And I feel like we've lost a lot of, we're losing a lot of empathy and we're losing a lot of understanding. And I think that's, I think it's a tragedy. I think we're moving into a very dangerous time where, if we, especially during COVID, I think if anything, COVID taught me not only that we're not grieving our people and uh, many things about the healthcare system in this country, but it, it taught me that people sadly, many people sadly don't care about other people. And that's very scary. And I, I think that goes back to kind of a general thought about um being a part of a community and, and caring about the people in our lives and whether they're strangers or they're, you know, people you've known your whole life. Um, I think that in a, in a, in a world where it's so easy to have your tribe of people is scattered across the world and you connect with them online, you, it's easier to not feel connected to the people that are actually around us that we like interact with on a daily basis. Um, maybe that is a contributing factor too, but um, the part of the book where we're honoring history and we're thinking about like this tragedy and thinking about it's important to, to care about it kind of ties into that like need for, you know, it's probably beneficial to be more community focused, more family focused, more involved in caring about the people that are in our lives and stuff like that. Yeah. I think, um, I agree. I, I think we're losing that. I think community is fractured. I think that, <laughs> I mean, I think as someone that was very online, I practically lived online. And I think that my writing career was kind of built from being online. I think that, uh, like, for example, like social media has just become a very scary place where it's just like, <laughs> it's like inciting anger. I mean, and then, you know, you can look back. I mean, we're, we're like taking a big tangent here. But like you can look back to the sun. I mean, my, my PhD, I'm, I'm a PhD ABD in psychology. Um, and so there's even studies from the 70s that highlight anger will create a lot of uh, conversation and a lot of interest. And so I think mm-hmm. that's like essentially mm-hmm. the social media model. Create anger, get people hooked, people will stay there longer. And I just think that that's part of many of the issues that we're experiencing today that's taking us away from empathy and so at least for me i guess to bring it back to my writing um that's why i think my writing is the focus of my writing i think today and where i'm moving more towards is on people and on Mm. empathy and i feel like at least i've kind of I'm slowly moving away from wanting to be called a horror writer just because I feel like I'm just a writer and I, I blend genres. I blend like crime and mystery and poetry. So I prefer just to be called a, a writer. But what, one trend that I have been seeing in horror is a lot, you know, the, emer- the increase of like extreme, the increase in splatterpunk, mm-hmm. a lot of like really angry narratives. And I think that's a response of what we're seeing. And so while they're moving in this direction, I feel like I'm moving into a direction where it's like, I want to talk more about things that are a little softer and quieter and to talk about empathy and how can we be good to one another? Yeah. <laughs> like even yeah. If it's a little small slice. Yeah. 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 No, I, it, it came across strongly in this book and, and it, thank you. Um, when, uh, Becky Spratford was on the podcast. We did like a, a 2024 horror preview and and she was on with Emily Hughes and she was talking about Forgotten Sisters. Um, 
And like one of the things she was talking about was like how like you're going to want to cry at the end and, and, and how like emotional um, things wrap up. And so, yeah, I definitely believe that. Um, and I, and I will, for people who know me, I, I, I cry a lot when I read, I really <laughs> invest myself in what's going on and, um, and emotionally take myself there. Um, mm. but you know, these types of stories are hopefully emotionally charged. Like you, you're there to get an experience out of them. Um, and I definitely did for, um, the forgotten sisters. Well, I'm glad I can do that. I think it's, <laughs> I think it's completely like good and healthy to like feel these things and to hopefully that feeling allows you to process other things as well in your life. Yeah. Now something uh, about the, the book that I'm going to talk selfishly about is that the main character, Anna has a podcast. <laughs> and so, um, she starts a podcast, uh, really because it, if I, and correct me if I, if I don't get this right, but cause there's all these things about her city that, um, she feels like people should know. Yeah. And so she's almost honoring these, these historical moments and, and trying to get people to care about them. Like we were talking about before, but something that happens for her is that she finds someone in a listener and it's a very sweet thing. Um, which mirrors really, honestly, when I, uh, started doing podcasting back in 2011, I was in a very like dark place. I was very sad. And, um, through starting doing this podcast, I met these authors and slowly kind of built like a community of friends and everything. Nice. And it kind of saved me in a way. And so I really connected with that part of the story because, it is a solitary thing sitting in a room and talking to a microphone, but it did create a connection with someone that never would have existed otherwise. And I thought that that was a powerful gift to give to your main character is like someone who is feeling so lonely yeah. um, through just reaching out with no hope of it going anywhere, actually something good coming out of it. Yeah. I, uh, that's one thing about, Anna, and uh, as you read the story, you'll realize why she is so lonely. And she's agoraphobic. She doesn't like to leave her house. She's scared of the world. But yet she longs for human interaction. And I've always believed that, I mean, you need people. You need someone to like talk to. I, I'm sure there's people that live very solitary lives, and that's good and healthy for them. But I've always felt that there's something powerful in being ha being able to have someone to say good morning to and to say good night to and to tell someone, hey, I just don't feel good today. Can we talk? It's yeah. nice to be able to have. And again, with the social with social media, that that's the good part of social media. That you know, there's always <laughs> there's always someone out there you can kind of tap into, but you never know who you're reaching out to. But it's nice to be able to talk to somebody and find someone and connect with someone and say, hey, did you see this movie? Did you read this book? I really liked it. Or you didn't like it. And we have a discussion. And I feel like we're losing that. Or maybe we don't know how to connect with one another because we're not always going to agree. I think that's part of what I had met with everything so customized today and everybody expects everyone yeah. expects everything to be a hundred percent custom to them and their needs, including people. I mean, I've been with my husband, like how many years? I don't even know. I've been, <laughs> we've been married like 21, 22 years and together, maybe 25. And, you know, we're going to disagree about things. That's, but it's still, you know, we have a commonality where we like one another and we respect one another. And so it's nice to be able to have, someone to turn to no matter what. And I, I wanted to show Anna and that desperation of being so lonely, of just speaking out into the void. And then when someone finally messages her, like, what is like, how, I think it was really sweet. It was very like yeah. innocent where she was like, Oh my God, somebody likes me. They have a crush <laughs> on me. I think it's so cute. And I think we forget about how exciting it is. Those first few moments of like building like a friendship absolutely and um and i think that the trap that i fall into is sometimes personally um 
I've got the one person. So I'm dating someone. I've got someone to talk to. And that's not great sometimes. Like having just the one person to dump all your shit on, pardon my language, um, it might not be the best idea. And so like being able to branch out and have different connections and and a, a support network of people so that you don't have one healthy relationship that you're poisoning by overloading it. You have multiple healthy relationships and you're spreading out and you're, you're feeling support. You're supporting people like continuing to grow your support network, I think is also important. Um, and, 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 but there was like that, that bit of hope from her finding someone through the podcast that was like, really well represented for like doing that, going out and finding a person to talk to. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, just about people. I've never felt like one person can be somebody's everything. Yeah. Um, You know, we're complex people. And so it's nice to have like different people to, to talk to. And then just like a start, just like a hint for the listeners or like, or a, a tip for the listeners, because that's one thing like many of us, many of us, myself included, have kind of messed up friendships and relationships by like just dumping your feelings on somebody. And I've learned that, well, a friendship should be someone that you kind of go to when you don't have all that stuff boiling up. And so one thing that's helped me is journaling. I wake up in the morning Mm -hmm. and like, like the first thing I do, I will just kind of like just dump everything in there. And so when I talk to my husband or when I talk to my friends throughout the day, I've kind of processed some of the heavy stuff. And of course you want your friends to be there to talk to you through issues, but it's nice to kind of be able to get that initial, like today I'm frustrated about, I don't know, my <laughs> tire. I got to get a freaking, you know, new tire again. And so it's <laughs> kind of nice to give something that initial hit <laughs> before coming to your friends with it. Yeah, that's a good point. Cause sometimes maybe you just needed to like say it out, out loud. I'm saying in quotes, like get it out, like, have the thought and now now it now you can put it to rest because I finally exactly. said the thing or whatever. So yeah, that's yeah. a good point. Um I, I didn't know we were gonna go so deep into these types of things, but um uh, I think it all ties in kind of with what's happening in the book. So it's all it's yeah. all relevant for sure. Um and then the Little Mermaid. So um is there a specific reason you went with that? I know like it, it being uh, a story that takes place on the water and references water in different ways throughout the book makes sense. But was there a deeper meaning for going with that? Yes. So Hans Christian Andersen lived a very sad life, tra- like a very tragic life, mostly because of that, because of he wasn't able to connect with people. Mm. He wasn't able to find his great love for uh, many reasons. And so he, I wanted to be able to showcase that. I wanted to be able to write about, um, I just felt it was a good mirror. Like he wasn't able to find somebody to love him and accept him, even though he tried throughout his life to try to make connections with people and people just wouldn't connect with him. And so I thought that that would be a good mirror with this particular book. And like wow. he, just, he just wrote these beautiful, sad, sad fairy tales because of what he was experiencing and, you know, his social life and his love life. And, uh, you know, one of the saddest fairy tales ever written, The Little Match Girl, he wrote it. And it's just such a sad, sad story. So I thought he was a perfect writer to kind of honor there. Wow. Um, well, and that makes me think because um, the book definitely tackles lots of sadness, sad thoughts in general, but it doesn't feel oppressively sad. It doesn't feel like it's smothering you with sadness. There's There seems like there's always maybe kind of a thread of hope, hope or optimism throughout the whole thing. So um, whatever you did, I think you found the right balance for how to approach sadness and grief and stuff without making it just beating you over the head with everything is awful. Yes. And even the ending while it, um, I don't want to spoil it, but even the ending while it might feel, I mean, there's a sadness to it. I think I still offered hope and I, I want to be able to end my novels now with a sense of hope because it's life is difficult as it is. 
And so there's so much heaviness that I think that many of us deal with and many of us just can't process because we're just moving through our life. And then when you hit the bed at night, you're just like, whew, all that happened today. And so I want to be able to write something where it's like, I can tell the reader, I, I understand what you're feeling very deeply, but mm -hmm. you're going to be okay. We're going to be okay. And I think that like for me, now that we're thinking, while we're having this conversation, I have such a hard time giving myself permission to be sad because like it mm -hmm. feels like something's wrong with me if that's the case. And really like it's just a natural emotion that we need to feel. And so, um, you know, I think that that's a that's a good thing to walk away with, too, is like it's necessary to feel sad sometimes and it's necessary to go through those types of feelings as part of just being a person. Right. I mean, it's yeah. the range of human emotions. We have to, we have to feel those things. And maybe those feelings are trying to tell us something else. So that's why I, for me, uh, uh, journaling has been instrumental. And then even writing, I mean, writing this novel, I feel like it was an act of, um, I was processing a lot during the writing of this book. I think I started writing it. When did I write the first draft of this book? I want to say 2021, I wrote the first draft of it. I can't mm -hmm. remember. But it was originally a novella. And then I just kept... It was originally a novella where it was just the sisters in the house. And then as I started extending it, then I, I, I was like, well, this is a detective story. And then the detective story. <laughs> and, then, and then I just kept extending it. And so... Um, but yeah, I had I was a pro I was processing a lot throughout the time of a shifting writing career, a dying father, uh, and yeah, what and what it, where I wanted to see myself as a writer and what I wanted to say, and I wanted to write a story about grief and remembrance. Yeah. Well, I think that one of the things I I do as a person, if I, even if I don't really realize it is that, um, when I'm reading a book, I'm, I, I try to, I think that I, I connect it to my own life. Like, how is this like my experience? And so maybe I'm trying to find out like, what can I learn about this from this about myself? And so I, I think that, you know, maybe that's one of the reasons that people read too, is like, um, sometimes it is, it's an escape, but sometimes it's like a learning opportunity too, like, how can this kind of story apply to me and what can I learn from it? So I think I'm going to try and be more, more intentional about that. Yeah. I mean, I'm very, I'm very careful and cautious about what I, about what I read and what I consume. I mean, I'm, I'm very, I'm very into like um, positive psychology and positive thinking. And so it's very important for me to kind of read and consume things that I feel like, will not upset me necessarily. <laughs> give me some kind of inspiration and motivation. And so I think I when I read, I'm gravitating towards something that's beautiful and hopeful and that has like a greater message. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, all right. So one thing before we wrap up that I meant to talk about earlier in the Chicago history part um, that I, I forgot to mention, but, and I even, I, I tested this with my girlfriend. She's like, don't bring this up, but I'm going to say it anyway, um, because it's like really my one personal connection with Chicago history. And it is that I'm, I was born on the 107th anniversary of the start of the great Chicago fire. <laughs> well, that's cool. That's super cool. So, <laughs> that's awesome. She's like, she's no one's going to care about that. And I so, care about that stuff. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but um, anyway, uh, I want to uh, thank you for taking the time to come on and talk to me. And um, thank you for writing such an incredible, entertaining book. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This was great. I, we talked all things like Chicago history in the book and like we got into like positive psychology. So that's cool too. <laughs> <laughs>